Hey guys, we're trying something new this October. We're going to collaborate with HF Pod and Under the Scales to bring you a month of podcasts aligned around a single theme. In October, we're going to be examining the end of Fish 1.0 with a particular focus on the October 2000 run. In the first week, you'll hear Tom interview a very special guest on Under the Scales while discussing the closing of the Fish organization. In week two, HF Pa will do an exploration of the tour and talk about the end of Fish 1.0 while hearing from fans about the tour experience. In week three, the Beyond the Pond team, that's us, will do a deep dive on the Phoenix Guy Forget while highlighting other bands connected to the jams theme. And in week four, we'll bring you a very special segment. All these episodes will be available on their normal feeds, so we encourage you to subscribe to all three shows. If this works well, And most importantly, if you all like it, we'll try it again. Once again, thank you all for your ongoing support of our show, as well as that of Osiris. Look forward to collaborating with our friends on a massive fish deep dive. Let's face it, having a lawn is awesome. Maintaining it, not so much. It gets tiresome and expensive, and you should be enjoying it as opposed to constantly mowing it. That's where Sinlon comes in. Sinlon is environmentally friendly. There's no watering, no use of pesticide products, no mowing. It's very low maintenance, and you save money. Sinlon uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA in the state of Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass. They have USDA bio-based certification. It's the safest and cleanest turf available. Great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or paws. Professional and certified distributors and installers nationwide. You get a premium quality product, which is highly durable and UV stabilized. You get your free time back. You can enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. And you can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It's green all year. It's really great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf. You want a golf hole in your backyard and many more projects. So please visit sinlawn.com slash beyond. That's S-Y-N-L-A-W-N dot com slash beyond. Get along you can be proud of all the time. Be proud of your neighborhood. Don't be that one guy in your neighborhood with the brown lawn who the neighbors gossip about over tea. Or even better, up your short game in a major way. Your golf buddies and your neighbors will thank you. Sin long. Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You're tuned in to episode 108 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. 
big fish fans. And sometimes the problem with fish fans, as you know, is they get a bit myopic, only focus on their favorite band, nothing else, no other bands, no other music, the other worldly universe of music might as well not exist. And that's not great. And we're here to do something about it. We are. We've been doing something about it for a hundred plus episodes and three and a half years, and we are still doing something about it. And moving forward, we're going to still do something about it because our mission to you is to bring you the music of fish, talk about it, deep dive it, get into the analytics, get into some fine tuned criticism, celebrate it. And then use it as a leaping off point to talk about other music. And and today's episode is going to focus on one of my favorite jams of 3.0, a jam that I've been wanting to cover since the inception of this podcast, as well as a number of bands that we all love here. We're talking about the Cross-Eyed and Painless from Eugene, Oregon on October 17th. 2014. This is indeed a jam that Brian has wanted to cover for a long time. We've been threatened to cover it for a long time. It's almost become a running gag for careful listeners of Beyond the Pond. And that's okay, because it's quite unique and good. Themes we're going to explore in this episode include autumnal road trips, cross-eyed at sea, yar, and Oregon music in our hearts and minds. And on that note, let's get to the fish. All right, so like I said at the start of this episode, full disclosure, I have been wanting to cover the Matthew Knight Arena Cross-Eyed and Painless from October 17th, 2014, since the inception of this podcast. On a number of occasions, we've come close to covering it, but have opted for another jam for one reason or another. Simply put, this is a top five 3.0 jam for me and one of the most underrated jams the band has ever played in my perspective. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced that Brian doesn't have strange dreams Involved in the October 17, 2014 version of Cross-Eyed and Painless. <laughs> Just because it's been mentioned on this podcast so many times. And we've... Podcasts, texts, what, what, you name it. I, I probably send you this uh, drunkenly at least like once a month. Just a screenshot of the live fish performance. Exactly. I love it so much. Screenshot of the live fish performance. Usually the text being like... Holy fucking shit with some like emojis. And I'll just be like, all right. I guess uh, we probably should cover this jam at some point, huh? And now we are. So why? Why why should we do this? See, you know, there's a lot of jams we love, but why are we covering this? Well, I would argue that there's really no other cross-eyed quite like it. Um, on the fish.net jam chart, there are 23 cross-eyed and painlesses listed as of time of recording. Most of these, 17 of them, are from 3.0. And many of these move in a jam based around the rhythmic structures of the song while remaining within its overall mode. Some break free. More on these shortly. 
but none have landed in the kind of hazy oceanic dream space the 1017 14 version did and in addition to this there's this massive tendency in 3.0 to return to the still waiting lyrics just when you wish that the band would push through to another segment of jamming this is the only version that i know of that when they return to the lyrics it's a moment to truly celebrate the eerie way that Trey sings the lyrics over the soundscape below him is one of the most haunting bits of songwriting on the fly that I've heard within 3.0. Yeah, what's kind of cool about that is um, he actually sings Still Waiting in the key of the jam itself. Like He does it melodically, which uh, at this point in the jam, I think it's modulated to what I believe is A major. And this is the point in the jam. There's been a lot of whale calls. So his voice kind of surfaces from the murky depths with the whales, and it's sort of sort of ghostly, and you could tell he was actually thinking about it as opposed to just like randomly throwing in a still waiting. So Yeah, it, it works like a, in this very thematic way that I just love. And um, as we noted, there's this is a very unique take on Cross-Eyed, but I think that there are a couple comparable versions of the tune when you kind of look at cross-eyed less as a springboard to rhythmic interplay and more of a soundscape and um, a couple of them that we have listed here the july 29th 2003 version i personally would say that this is the best jam of 2.0 this is one of my top five favorite fish jams of all time it's 27 minutes wild melodic experimentation it's the first cross-eyed since i believe 914 2000 at that point and uh, one of only two cross sides in 2.0 uh, fast forward six years the second cross side of 3.0 on july 31st 2009 from red rocks you get this very unique melodic jam that has a very nice segue into joy and uh, jumping ahead three more years august 19th 2012 uh, recent dinner in a movie uh, back when we had dinner in the movies on a regular basis. Uh, this was a wheel-esque jam that kicked off what my co-host, Mr. David Goldstein, would call the best 3.0, excuse me, the best three, third, quarter third quarter of 3.0. Yeah. That might have been the first cross-side where they actually went back to the still-waiting lyrics. No, because they had had no. the, uh, I think it was a year prior uh, the UIC version, they go back to it and it leads to this cross-eyed infused second set. But it's it's oh, one of the okay. earlier ones. They'd done it a couple right. of times on uh, summer 2012, but that was probably the most tastefully done. Right, because they do it after the Sally, after the huge Sally explosion, and they go back slowly into the cross-eyed of the still waiting and then kind of ramp it back up and then goes into what theme from the bottom next Yes, yes, it does. Right. Okay, right. So going forward, we've got January 17th of 2016, kind of an odd jam that moves into Shipwreck, being, of course, one of the Mexico shows, Shipwreck, Water, quite appropriate. July 25th, 2017, my first cross-eyed, first one I ever saw. Of course, Crazy. that being a, yeah, Jam Field Night and um, the second set that just was 
30 minutes. The second segment following the initial peak is huge. Of the gigantic jams in that show, I give the lawn boy the edge over the cross eye, but that's just like saying, I don't know, you like red licorice more than black licorice. They're both fucking great. And then uh, July 22nd of 2018, kind of an ambient groove. One of the uh, more solid shows of uh, that summer of 2018, in our opinion. I, I want to pause really quick because I don't know if we've ever addressed this. Are you a Black Licorice fan as well? Yeah, love Black Licorice. Man, that is like, I don't know if there's anything more symbolic for why we work together on this podcast. That's that's beautiful. We this, always like This is the Black Licorice fi- Fish podcast, if you will. Every time, I mean, I enjoy red licorice as well, but every time there's like a store that has like a British candy section, I just go right to like the Bassett's licorice all sorts. Because that's like the variety of like black licorice and it's a big variety of black licorice that my wife absolutely, it, it, it like grosses her out to no end. She can't even be same in the same room when I'm eating like licorice, all sorts. It, it is it is a point of contention in my house as well. So one day we're just going to have like our own little like chalet and studio and all we're going to do is record this podcast and uh, eat black, black licorice. licorice and have the redheaded stranger catered to us. So I look forward to that day. Someday soon. Wasn't there like a recent Curb Your, uh, recent episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry goes to like a BMW dealership just because yes. they have like amazing licorice? <laughs> <laughs> he ends up buying like a $150,000 car just to justify the, the, yes. like getting the licorice. Uh, what a good season. Um, right. Anyway. So before we get to all of that, uh, we are back in fall 2014 here. We want to talk a bit about the show itself, October 17th, 2014, which was, I believe, my brother's 28th birthday. As it happened, we were in a cabin in the north woods of Wisconsin listening to this, which may or may not have impacted my overall love for this cross-eyed and painless. It sounds very north woodsian. Um, but in terms of the show, in terms of the tour, this was the fall 2014 tour opener. And like fall 2014, it mostly falls flat. Uh, it is nicely representative of where the band was at this point terms of still trying to figure out where the Fuego tunes fit in the rotation, attempting to hide their surprise Halloween performance of Chilling Thrilling, and working at recapturing the magic of fall 2013 jamming. And in all three categories, they essentially come up short throughout the tour. However, like this cross-eyed, uh, I'd argue the best moments seem to come through better in hindsight than they did in the moment. Um, the show... The tour opens with Waiting All Night. Uh, personally, I think that this is one of the best songs on Fuego. I think we're in agreement with this, but I don't know. Um, I think it's great on Fuego. They haven't really figured out how to get the most of it on stage. Totally. It's kind of a square peg in a round hole. You don't really want to hear it in a second set, but I think it has a lot of ambient jamming capacity that's never ever been done but on Fuego it's great it's kind of like the closest they get to sounding like Yola Tango exactly and I, I would argue the um, 
the version that works really well is the August 1st, 2015 version uh, that comes out of a 26 minute tweezer that uh, is yet another, to your point, an opportunity for them to keep jamming, but they really don't. Um, this first. That's Atlanta, right? That's Atlanta. Yeah. Atlanta? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, this first set works like many tour opener first sets in that it doesn't really work. Uh, you definitely don't want to play it at a barbecue, and it serves the sole purpose of getting fish in shape to play a tour. Yeah, you don't really want to get sample in a jar, 555, waiting all night, strange design, and free all in the same set. I mean, none of those songs is bad in, in, uh, in and of itself. But just in terms of getting any sort of momentum, it doesn't really do it. Uh, there's a pretty good Reba, and I'll never diss a walk-off squirming coil, but it's a supremely like 3.0 first set. Almost kind of feels like something out of like 2011, even. Yeah, and it, we'll talk about this here in a second. But like, they wouldn't really do themselves any favors this tour by essentially playing what felt like one tour opener after another until they got to the San Francisco shows and the final six shows of the overall tour. Um, set two has a few more moments in the Carini into Plasma and the aforementioned Cross-Eyed plus the Harry Hood that comes out of Cross-Eyed. And I would say on a side note, it's really insane to me that this is the debut performance of Plasma. It never made an appearance in 2.0 and it took until fall of 2014 to debut in 3.0. Uh, this song in and of itself, it's just an infectious groove it was made to jam for 20 minutes and somehow the band has only played it 13 times total with the Rosemont 2018 version and the versions from Providence 2019 being the most memorable. Yeah, that Providence show is not good, but they did play Plasma in like almost every song in like the second set as like a running joke that end everything went to ba da ba 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 da ba but that's that was a tour opener night two was great night one was not great yeah night two is great and there's a few uh plasma teases i think later in that show i think they like end the whole show with that um but yeah night one is not very good uh aside from the fact that they played bye bye love for the first time um, or bye bye foot. Bye bye foot. Bye bye love. Not the Everly Brothers cover. No. Uh, bye bye foot for the first time since two or since nineteen ninety seven. Right, and then night two is the like page TSX sound. Yeah, it has a really good Alaska. Set. Like Alaska goes like ten minutes and it gets super dark and swampy. There's a great. All right, and that was the it. one where Trey was like, "All right, this song is called Meat. Hit it, Paige." Yeah. <laughs> what a weird little eight or nine show run that they did last year. Um, so I was talking, you know, briefly uh, here about the, the, the idea of fall 2014 and kind of what, what we think about it. And we here at beyond the pond are pretty big proponents of the notion that summer 2012, the 2015 was really like the peak of 3.0. The band was firing on all cylinders. They were super tight, but also their jamming is really inventive and, well, I think we both love the jamming that's come out of the last three years, the tightness with which the band plays or played uh, six or seven years ago. It just is is kind of missing. It, it leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, and yet 
2014 is a kind of a year marred by pretty poor set listing and noticeable lack of jamming and it's the only new year's eve run devoid of a 12:30 show it sits squarely <laughs> in the middle of this brilliance and what do we make of this well ultimately 2014 is a transition year for the band as they sought to incorporate their first batch of new songs in five years while growing as a band in ways that will be fully clear in July of 2015. Its closest comps, I would say, are uh, 2016 and 2018 in terms of the 3.0 Brotherhood. Uh, and like the latter, it's aged better than it was received in the moment. Like the former, there are still some head-scratching moments, but what ultimately makes it worth revisiting is the brilliance with which Trey can string together ideas and deliver classical performances of all of their songs. In addition, I would argue the jamming from fall 2014 comes through much better in hindsight than it did in the moment. At the time, the jams from this tour were so nuanced, which stood in such stark contrast to the big and thematic jams from fall 2013, that they felt like jams for jamming's sake. However, listening back, you really hear the band build to the chilling, thrilling uh, uh, show and bleed towards summer 2015 in a way that kind of would lead to a massive peak for the band. So, fall 2014 is a gigantic blur for me, which can be explained by the fact that uh, it began eight days after I became a dad for the first time. So, suffice to say, my mind wasn't really on fish. To the extent I heard any of these shows in real time, it was a very sleep-deprived, very confused set of years. Uh, <laughs> I, do, I do recall hearing October 7th this show... Because I remember being in my kitchen preparing bottles and I heard plasma and I thought, oh, that's kind of neat. Um, I do recall I streamed one of the Santa Barbara shows because I just remember thinking how like, beautiful that venue was for an outdoor show. And I think I also streamed um, October 24th from the forum and just thought it was boring as hell. <laughs> just thinking, this isn't very good. This is not a terribly exciting show and I'm watching it on my television. And I definitely, uh, for chilling, thrilling, being that it was Halloween, I stayed up for that. Uh, my daughter was up at 1.30 in the morning, bopping around in her like pack and play <laughs> with me during uh, the face paint zombie Halloween set. So that was kind of neat. But yeah, and just kind of like going over fall 2014 in preparation, a lot of it was a bit surprising just because my brain was very much scrambled eggs in October of uh, uh, 2014. It's all very understandable. I uh, I kind of felt the same way about the uh, New Year's Eve 2015 and Mexico 2016 runs where I was just kind of like, I'm here. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I, I needed to learn about them in, in reverse because I was a, a new dad brain. But um, like I was saying, you know, a lot of these jams, I really find they hold up a lot better years later and. Not a ton of people talk about big shows out of 2014. Obviously, the Randall's Night 3, Meriwether Night 2, your Chalk Dust Torture Jam from Randall's Night 3, your Tweezer Fest from uh, July 27th. Really, really great shows, but kind of outliers in terms of what the band was doing in 2014. So we wanted to give you a rundown of what we think are the best jams of fall 2014 that we would highly recommend you going back and listening to. Um, so aside from the cross and Painless we're going to play here in a second, uh, from night one at Santa Barbara, 
The second set opens up with a really fantastic Chalk Dust Torture into Ghost segment. Uh, the, the Ghost in particular, Trey, is just like strumming these beautiful chords that just kind of rise slowly. It reminds me of this cross-eyed and it's one of the most relaxing bits of music I've heard from him. And if you've ever been to Santa Barbara, if you've ever seen the amphitheater they've played there, just a perfect, perfect setting for that type of jam. Uh, the following evening from Santa Barbara, all around better show, um, albeit not as like uh, straightforward of like a jamming standpoint. There's a really cool segment in set two where they play theme from the bottom and essentially go into just a full on echoes jam from Pink Floyd that I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, that's not nearly as long as I would like, but that's that's very echoes. Trey's playing like the Gilmore riff. Yes. It's not, not just a hint of echoes. It was in their head. It's a full blown echoes jam. Um, yeah. And then uh, October 24th from the Forum, a venue that we have, uh, it's a much maligned fish venue, albeit I would say if you're ever going to make a trip out to LA to see fish, it's definitely worth going to the venue, even though you can highly expect a underwhelming fish show. Uh, the Down with Disease midway into set two. Trey is like channeling Pete Townsend in the end of it. It is such a rock star moment. I absolutely love it. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. If you haven't heard this down with disease in some time, please do so. Do yourself a favor. It's so good. But that's it with that show. That's it. <laughs> October 27th, there was a ghost that is quite weird and sloppy, ever so slightly wild. We highly recommend you listen to that one. What's next? Uh, October 28th from uh, San Francisco. I would argue this yeah. is the best night of the overall tour. Uh, you've got four standout segments, uh, a really good set list overall. This is to me like where the tour just like peaks coming out of uh, October 28th through the conclusion of the tour. The final five shows are excellent. Um, gumbo into sanity in the first set. You get this groove based jamming and gumbo into this very joyous breakthrough insanity. Uh, Kill Devil Falls kicks off set two, a very spacious, expansive version that fades into Mountains in the Mist. Twist uh, is the capstone highlight of the show. Really eerie, melodic riff from Trey. And uh, Harry Hood uh, has a full-on The Dog's Jam five nights uh, before, three nights before Halloween, I should say. Um, that It's at the point in the tour where like they can't hold back. Like Chilling Thrilling is in their heads, and it just explodes out of this Harry Hood. So, next night, October 29th, Light into Possum. Extremely cool segue. That was uh, not what somebody would think of, a possum coming out of that light. That was fantastic. Of course, Halloween, October 31st, everyone thinks about the uh, chilling, thrilling set. But, there's actually uh, a sand in that show. That's in set three. Deep That's in set in, three. Deep in the third set. Kind of uh, sometimes Halloween set three is mailed in other than 1998. This one definitely was not. There's some very cool grooves in there. And then uh, the next night, November 1st, there's a segment that goes light into the dogs into lengthwise into twist. So it's kind of a combination of uh, some interesting gimmickry, but it also it's also very cool and forward thinking. And finally, what do we got for the final night? November 2nd 
opens up with a really cool chalk dust that goes into Piper. The Piper goes into this very deep ambient gem. Uh, it's a very uh, nuanced segment. Uh, it really, that, the ghost, uh, the twist from 1028, I mean, these are all kind of representative jams of what the band was doing in fall 2014. I absolutely love it. So, let's go back to what we were talking about before and play a bit of a segment of the Cross-Eyed and Painless from October 17th, 2014.
I don't know about you, Brian. I could live without fish more easily than I could live without caffeine. That's kind of sad, dude. I know. I'm not proud of it, but that's my cross to bear. There's literal film over my brain until I have that swig that first cup in the morning, usually followed by four of the cups throughout the day. It's not a cheap hobby. Well, can I share some good news with you? Please do. This is where Grady's Cold Brew comes in. Order online and get their famous New Orleans-styled iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit. You get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a buck a cup. So what you're saying is that Grady's will end up saving me a ton of money, but also a ton of time. I won't have to socially distance and lie at the coffee shop because Grady's really like dispenses directly from my fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes from a spigot. How cool is that? I am saying all of that and more. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl, Dave? Mm-hmm. We'll get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. You feel like you've risen from the depths of the sea. It's a choppy sea today. It's a cool, gray, misty day off the coast of Oregon. And you are just floating along in the oceanic vibes of that cross-eyed and painless. And it's also fall. This jam obviously happened in the middle of, of October probably my favorite part of the entire year. And as I noted at the top of this, this jam happened while I was in the North woods of Wisconsin with my brother and my dad doing a big road trip, hanging out in cabins, hanging out in North woods, bars, eating fish fries, drinking old fashions, bloody Mary's playing cards, just having a fantastic, fantastic, uh, couple of days. And every time I hear it, I'm always brought back to the feeling of driving around backwoods on a road trip in the middle of fall. So I was thinking how great it would be to cover that feeling, that vibe of autumnal road trips. We're about to enter into deep fall. Maybe fall where you are right now as this episode is released. Um, And this might be a good companion piece for you as you drive around the region that you're living in and... um, Soaking in the foliage, soaking in the end of a really intense year, but hopefully there's better things on the horizon, you know? Mm. So to do so, in addition to the fact that we're covering a jam I've been wanting to cover since this podcast inception, I might as well chat about the band that we've been uh, discussing since this podcast inception. So much so that at one point this became a running gag among our core first listeners. You know who you are, all of you. Thank you so much. And we'd figure a way early on, probably through like episode 50, I want to say, to insert this band into every single episode just to make people drink 
Wallaceine to us. Also, we're talking about fall 2014, which is when I listen to this band on a near daily basis. So it's just so damn fitting to highlight them here. That is the war on drugs. We're going to talk about an album I have not talked about with regards to the war on drugs. I've talked about 2014's Lost in the Dream ad nauseum. I've probably featured five of the songs off that record in various episodes here. It's my number one album of the decade. But that record didn't happen in a vacuum for me. And I want to talk about the album that came before it, which was Slave Ambient and the opening track, Best Night, which if it's not my favorite War on Drugs song, it's definitely in my top three. So uh, in late summer 2011, my brother sent me a link to download the War on Drugs Slave Ambient saying in all caps, you have to hear this. It's everything that we listened to growing up in a new record. Naturally, I said, okay, and I threw it on and was pretty much transfixed within five seconds of Best Night, starting nostalgia, sadness, memories, happiness, all these feelings associated with the best music that I've heard in my life came rushing over me. There's any gift that Adam Grandisheel and company have, it's giving you this sense of renewal in nostalgia. While their music is made with the expansive Americana of 1980s rock, it's by no means just a tribute. It's an update on the feelings best associated with Americanism of the Reagan era, made by a band and for listeners experiencing the aftershocks of such short-sighted nationalism. This mysterious space it exists in is its eternal appeal and lasting power. That fall that it came out, Fall 2011, my wife and I spent a number of weekends road tripping around Oregon, our only full fall there, and listened to this record on repeat. It was one of those records that I could guarantee appeal for her and just sounded right in the car driving through the forest of Oregon along the coast. Biking to and from the restaurant that I cooked at, it was a fantastic soundtrack for my rides. And a year later, when we drifted around the States on an ongoing road trip, it again soundtracked our drives through the mountains and across the vast prairie of this country. It's a definitive autumnal road trip record for me. This is the second album from the war on drugs. It's also their final record to feel feature Kurt Vile on guitar coming a year after Vile's smoke ring for my halo. The crossover between the two bands sounds uncanny similar in, in ways to their first record wagon wheel blues. It's a combination of songs and instrumental interludes. This is a practice that continued with Lost in the Dream, but was essentially abandoned with a deeper understanding, unless you want to count thinking of a place as an extended interlude. As a result, it feels kind of like an EPLP combo. Ultimately, Slave Ambient serves as a table setter for Lost in the Dream, and that's not a bad thing. It's the bedroom dream record for for Grandishiel, which allowed him to make a name for himself and focus on developing his songwriting, which led directly to his complete breakthrough in 2014. For me, this record will always be the intro to the war on drugs for me. Moreover, it came to me at a time when I was listening to a lot of ambient music and signaled an awakening and a return for me to the classic rock music that I grew up with. In addition, it's provided the soundtrack to some of the best road trips I've taken in recent years. So without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to Best Night by the War on Drugs off of 2011's Slave and Beat. 
obviously, uh, you know how I feel about Slave Ambient. In fact, in 2011, I was uh, driving through the woods of Portland, Oregon with my wife. We were on vacation before we had kids and definitely played Slave Ambient while driving up to the Multnomah Falls, I believe. Yeah, what else did we do on that trip? On that trip, we went to Full Sail Brewing on that same road trip before driving back to Portland proper. This is that really? is like that trip is like one of those misconnections that I just how we didn't hang out and drink a, a pint of stout in Portland, Oregon. I mean, we didn't know each other at the time, but no. it's just, it's just it, there's something super wrong with it. What's the big one downtown Bailey's Taproom? Oh, I love Bailey's Taproom. Yeah. First place I ever saw one of those um, LCD screens that tells you how much is left in the keg. I thought that was so cool. I would mop the floor there whenever I would drink in hopes that they would just decide to give me a job. It's it uh, <laughs> all of the bar. That was what I was told by all of the bartenders. Uh, you have to work for free for at least a year before they hire you. Oof. Okay. So in terms of autumnal road trip music. I could just talk about Rose City Band again, but that'd be boring, and I've already talked about them like 25 times. So, let's talk about a record that's relatively new. I'm going to talk about a band called No Joy. The album is called Motherhood, and we're going to listen to the third song of that record called Nothing Will Hurt. So, unlike a lot of the albums that we discuss in these sections, this is a fairly new record. It was actually just released in the middle of this past August. However, to me, it feels like a crisp fall breeze every time I put it on, which has been quite often as of late now the temperatures in New York City are peaking in the mid-60s during the day. So No Joy are basically a shoegaze band from Montreal, Canada, headed by uh, Jasmine White Gluz, Gluz, not quite sure how to pronounce the last name. While they had a few permanent members and past records, right now the band is essentially uh, her project with a cast of rotating musicians. And for the longest time, No Joy was the quintessential, quote, band I should really enjoy on paper, but I don't. They're a prolific, female-fronted shoegaze band from Canada, what's not to like, but I never really heard any hooks or anything to keep me running back. And that all changed with this record. Though it's rooted in the thick walls of guitar and ethereal vocals that comprise most good shoegaze music, Motherhood kind of harkens back to the late 90s in that it's kind of like an overstuffed pastiche of a record. There's hip-hop beats, goofy slap bass, bongos, cut-up samples of, like, babies cooing. I mean, all that is utilized. Like, you know how... In the late 90s, you'd have like big beat records from the likes of like Fatboy Slim, the Chemical Brothers, Basement Jacks, maybe even, um, I guess, Primal Screams Exterminator. And like critics would be like, this is the dance album, but it's actually the best rock album of the year, man. <laughs> this is kind of like that, except it doesn't suck. Everything on the album is imbued with a sense of like wide eyed wonder that'll sound really good when you're driving through the planes, the windows down. Provided the sound system in your vehicle isn't really garbage like mine is. And um, the vocals of uh, White Glues, they kind of split the difference between, um, I like to think of like the Cocteau Twins, Liz Fraser, and uh, her fellow Canadian weirdo Grimes. 
and I think there's like some kind of loose thread regarding like motherhood and babies running throughout the lyrics when you can make them out. I mean, there's talks about there's a song called How Some Mothers Die, and like on the last song on the record, it's all about being a good mother. I mean, it's kind of um, it's interesting in that sense. And despite the overstuffed arrangements, everything is placed with a purpose. The album never crossed the line to cheese. More like, well, if we're going to be cliche and on point, it's kind of with the joy of seeing a newborn for the first time. It's a wondrous record. Kind of really will be in my, I think, top ten at the end of the year. And it feels crisp like a pile of autumn leaves. So, let's listen to a bit of Nothing Will Hurt off of uh, Motherhood and No Joy. with our listeners and that we are middle-aged guys with beards. So we say to those listeners, how much could you save in one year by switching to Harry's? Enough to buy 26 cups of coffee in New York City, enough for three deep dish pizza dinners in Chicago, enough to pay six months of your Netflix subscription. How? Harry's delivers high quality razor blades as low as $2 each, a fraction of the price of the leading brand and saving you hundreds of dollars over time. I used my Harry's razor this morning. I like the grip. I really like the scent. 
of the shave gel it comes with. It's just high quality blades. I mean, I've got a beard, but I cannot countenance a neck beard. I've got to have clean lines. And frankly, that's what I get from Harry's. I get clean lines. Get a Harry's trial set delivered to your doorstep by going to harrys.com slash BTP beyond the pond. Harry's is a return to the essential. Quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just two bucks per blade. Cut out the middleman, manufacturing blades in a German blade factory that's been honing precision blades for a century. Harry's is super convenient, has all your grooming needs in one stop, and you can feel a little bit better about your purchase because 1% of all proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better mental health care for men and veterans. To help support those who need it most right now, Harry's has donated a million dollars worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. So listeners of Beyond the Pond can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash BTP. You will get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich, lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash BTP to start shaving and saving today. Get rid of that neck beard, guys. People don't like it. You think they do, but they don't. All right. The new album recommendations. A lot of, a lot of really good music this year, man. Of all the shit that we've gone through this year, a lot of really good music. You know what I'm saying? And we will... We will remind you it's the end of September here. The October band camp Friday is coming up. Go through what we've put out here over the year. Go through our new album recommendations throughout 2020 and throw some of these bands a bone. One of our favorite bands, Garcia Peoples, is about to put out a new record that we're very excited about. Uh, we have heard it's gonna it. Cave some heads in. It it's is gonna cave your skull in. Fantastic, man! It is. Uh, it's the best record. Yeah, I can't wait for so many of you to hear it. It is gonna be one of my ten favorite records of the year, and I listen to it pretty regularly. So, um, throw some of these bands that you guys love some money on Bandcamp Friday, and uh, include these two artists that we're gonna speak about. So. I'm going to talk about a band uh, called Young Jesus and their record, Welcome to Conceptual Beach. Uh, Part of the joy of this podcast is the opportunity for each of us to project our own musical fantasies onto the world and at times discover bands that fit those fantasies. For me, one of my musical dreams is the band Grizzly Bear Jamming. With Young Jesus' fifth album, Welcome to Conceptual Beach, we get the closest thing this idea becoming a reality uh evolving from a cross between an emo group and an art project young jesus's penchant for jamming in the studio and their open-ended live shows really shines through on this record it's loose connected around thematic ideas in many ways it feels like a thematically unified fish second set Lyrically, lead singer John Rossiter explores memory and sadness in a naked and emotive way that complements his musical explorations in a way that you can get lost deep in his memories emerging out of the other side, renewed and exhausted. 
The most fascinating aspect of this record, however, is the band's ability to find, follow ideas and jams deep without care for track length or conclusion. They certainly find a landing pad wherever they need to be sure, but along the way they explore some truly fascinating terrain. Uh, I heard about this record first on the IndieCast uh, podcast that I edit, uh, hosted by Stephen Hyden and Ian Cohen, two fantastic music writers. Um, they were recommending their, I think, unheralded records of 2020 thus far. And this one really struck me as a fascinating idea, uh, fascinating insight. And uh, the idea of indie bands jamming is something that we've been a huge proponent of here at Beyond the Pond and a huge supporter of. And you definitely get that here with this record. Um, I've sent this to a number of friends, gotten great thoughts and reviews back from it. I would highly recommend Young Jesus's Welcome to Conceptual Beach as a great experimental record to throw on here right now. David, what do you got? Okay, Brian. So I'm going to talk about a record by a guy named Zephaniah O'Hora. The album is called Listening to the Music. So Zephaniah O'Hora, he's a New Hampshire-raised, Brooklyn-based country singer who often sounds more a little bit like Merle Haggard, and he tends to evoke the uh, string-heavy country politan sounds of the 1960s as well as uh, the sounds that emanated from Bakersfield, California, also in the late 60s. And kind of what's a little amazing about uh, this album to me is aside from um, rock-solid traditional country songwriting, both the production on this album and I guess also uh, his debut album, This Highway, which came out in 2017, the production is impeccable and gorgeous. Everything from the Telecaster riffs, the whining pedal steel guitar, uh, the strings, the blues harmonica from Mickey Raphael, who I believe plays in, um, in Willie Nelson's band. The sound of this record is a feast for the ears. And it's very clear that he didn't cut any corners with the production aspect. Like, I don't see any synthesizers, keyboards, like everything that you're hearing is the actual instrument from which it is played. And also... It's kind of sad because it happens to be one of the last projects that the late, great Neil Castle worked on. Um, I know Neil Castle had, uh, he produced the record, which I think was actually pretty much finished over a year ago, despite only being released last month, and Castle committed suicide shortly after, as we know. But uh, certainly Castle's love of a good country song and his fascination with sound comes through clearly on what ends up being a pretty excellent tribute to his camaraderie uh, with musicians. I think it's worth noting that uh, Zephaniah O'Hora has also played many shows at, and I think actually used to be the booker for the uh, Skinny Dennis, which is a honky-tonk venue in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I know that he's also a pretty well-known deadhead. I think he sometimes spins dead at clubs on vinyl under the moniker DJ Z. But what he has here is a impeccable sounding, very lush album, evocative of uh, a bygone time. While it won't win too many points in the field of originality, it really captures the vibe it's going for extremely well. Uh, an artist we've talked about on this podcast before named Joshua Headley kind of also comes to mind. And uh, also, if uh, Zephaniah's Instagram is to be believed, he just had a kid. So... Welcome to Fatherhood, dude. 
already looking to your next record, which will have uh, lovingly sappy pedal steel songs all about your son. You won't be getting much sleep, but you made a pretty fucking awesome record. So, kudos. Dave. Yes. It was another 18-inning loss and a meaningless season for the Cubs. I am reeling today. Mmm. Sounds like you needed some get a little pep in your step, son. A little, little extra pick-me-up. I do. This is where Grady's cold brew comes in. Order online, get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. So wait, what you're saying is that Grady's is going to end up saving me a ton of money and also time. I'm not going to have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from my fridge, already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes with a spigot. Do I get a division win this year? That remains to be seen, but there most certainly is a bag of coffee with a spigot in your fridge. Furthermore, Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. So in segment two, we wanted to shout out the locale of this jam. Um, I believe this is our first fish jam that we're covering from the state of Oregon. Uh, I could be slightly off about that, but I believe it's true because there haven't been a lot of fish shows in the state of Oregon. And um, when I lived there, there was no hope of a fish show in the state of Oregon. Uh, But very, very cool that the band has uh, graced Oregon with um, more regular shows in the last in recent years and the very next fish show assuming everything goes gets better in 2021 and fish is able to tour that summer uh, is currently slated for the state of Oregon Uh, but we also wanted to address uh, at time of recording here in mid-September there are some very severe wildfires raging across the West Coast, um, acutely in Northern California, as well as in the great state of Oregon, a state I called home for about 18 months. Um, we're thinking about, we have both have a number of friends in Oregon. We both have a number of people that we care about. Um, so thinking about a lot of people right now, hoping that everyone is safe and riding through this uh, apocalyptic wildfires along with COVID-19 is a insane 2020, if you will. So with that in mind, we wanted to talk about a couple of artists that we love from the state of Oregon. Uh, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite bands I've ever heard from the city of Portland, and that is Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives. And I'm going to talk about their 2010 release. Uh, just turned 10 years old as time of recording. Uh, their self-titled 2010 release, and the song I'm going to play is Bootstraps. 
So I moved to Portland, Oregon in November of 2010 after wanting to move there since 1995. Portland was the first place I visited west of the Mississippi as a 10-year-old. I always felt a kinship to the Blazers following the 1992 finals, and I just loved the vibe of the city. When I went to college in Montana, I always figured I'd move to Seattle or Portland after graduation. And while it took a year in Korea to save up the money to get there, I arrived at 25, just as the sun would descend behind the clouds for the following nine months. One of the first shows that I saw there, though, was a holiday show featuring local bands at the Doug First Lounge. I started writing for Oregon Music News at that time and used it as an opportunity to check out the show with a bunch of bands that sounded up my alley based on a few SoundCloud spins. I drank porters, met with some fellow millennials who were working hourly service industry jobs like myself, and reveled in the new city I was attempting to call home. Late in the show, there was a band that took the stage that has hung with me ever since leaving Portland, and that is Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives, which is led by uh, singer-songwriter Drew Grow and a number of local musicians that uh, have since evolved into a band called Modern Kin, shed a few members, brought on a few others, but at its heart, the band is the lyrical brilliance of Drew Grow and the uh, folksy, ambient, experimental, all kind of fused together recording style that he tends to go with. Um, at his heart, Drew Grow's lyrics are... <sighs> They move away from like direct storytelling. They're very atmospheric. They're very uh, uh, kind of descriptive in like a larger kind of vaguer sense that really set a mood rather than tell a direct story. And in that you can interpret kind of what he's singing about specifically to your own feeling, to who you are, to what you're going through at that time. And I really quite liked that in terms of where my head was at in 2010. And it's allowed these lyrics and these songs to kind of shift with me over the last 10 years. Um, fans of most of the music that we present here on Beyond the Palm would love Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives. The album is Folk in Nature. Uh, definitely sounds like something that could have come out of North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina here in the last decade. Um, and I'm kind of shocked that Drew's never reached the kind of satisfactory fame outside of the Northwest than he should, especially. Um, he has gone ahead and Married a rock star, if you will. Janet Weiss, correct? Don't know if they're married, but they're romantically involved. Yes. 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 Um, the former drummer for Slater Kinney. Um, but, you know, you would think, like, there'd be some great connections in play there for him. Like, hey, here's my guy's record. And he would suddenly blow up and be all over Pitchfork. But it hasn't happened yet. And maybe it's for the best. Drew's... Uh, Songwriting, his kind of persona seems to be best served uh, as the type of artist that you stumble across in a coffee shop, in a bar. Uh, personally, I just want the most success for him for these artists from Portland because they're all really hardworking. They make just fantastic music that I love. Uh, so this record to me will always sound like fall in the Pacific Northwest. It's one of the best times of the year there. Oregon, famously, the sun disappears after Halloween, and then it reappears after July 4th. Uh, in that whole like 10-month, nine-month cycle, it's just a lot of rain and gray skies for 
40, 50 day stretches and you get the occasional nice day. But this record sounds like the tail end of fall, just big crispy leaves that you walked through in the beautiful parks and neighborhoods around Portland, Oregon. So we're going to listen to the second track on the record here, Bootstraps, which is infectious, groovy. It's like a fucking dance song that like, it almost sounds like, like a dance rock song from like the mid two thousands, but it is so organic and uh, just like has this country barroom shuffle to it that I absolutely love. Uh, let's go ahead here and listen to Bootstraps off of Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives self-titled record. correct when you say that this was the first jam we've covered from the state of Oregon. I think the closest we've come was we covered the Riverport Gin in our third episode and that is the filler on Live Fish 17 which is from Portland. This is why we podcast. That that connection, I bravo. Yeah. So we didn't cover a jam from the Live Fish we covered the fillers. That's probably about the closest that we've got. Anyhow, I'm going to talk about a band from Portland, Oregon, before Portland, Oregon became PDX. The band is called Wipers. The song is called Over the Edge, off of the album of the same name. So Wipers first formed in Portland, Oregon, I want to say 1977. And at this point in time, as far as punk rock, or any kind of music or artist, aside from uh, the Kingsmen's Louie Louie, they're from Portland. Uh, it was basically, it was the middle of fucking nowhere in 1977. At the center of basketball. 
Okay, that's a good point. Bill Walton, right? Was mm-hmm. he Blazers? Yeah. Okay. That was their championship year. Yes. And what? Um, Bill Walton probably didn't like wipers, though. I don't think it really hit him at that point. He was much more than the dead. And 77, no. he was probably just listening to uh dead Spotify channel, if you will, just kind of on repeat. Yeah, or whatever the equivalent of the dead Spotify channel would be in 1977. <laughs> they didn't have her listed in 1977, Brian. <laughs> anyway, middle of nowhere, and the Wipers front man and really only constant member, Greg Sage, he liked it that way. As the Wipers trafficked in a brand of kind of severe shape-shifting punk rock anchored by Greg Sage's guitar virtuosity and a very crunchy, very treble-heavy sound that often seemed to kind of like completely hollow out the low end. I mean, you listen to drums on Wipers records, it sounds like an eraser hitting like a pad of paper. And I mean, Greg Sage was kind of like a noted studio geek. I think he often built his own studios. Uh, He probably did this on purpose. I think he also impressed his friends in high school by purchasing a lathe and cutting his own vinyl records. Very DIY. But what's most notable about Wipers is both Greg Sage's uh, uniquely yelpy voice and his lyrics, which are almost entirely about alienation and the feeling that you just don't belong really anywhere. And his vocals are uh, intense unsettling. I mean, Sage always kind of sounds like he's on the verge of doing something he really shouldn't be. And the Wipers, their first record was Is This Real in 1979. And I think probably the finest aspects of their discography came out in uh, the early to the mid 80s. I mean, they were kind of always more successful in Europe than in the States. And Sage initially disbanded the group and moved to Arizona. And I want to say 1989, there was kind of a reunion of sorts under the Wipers' name in 1993. And uh, the album Silver Sail, which is not very good, came out. And then there were two decent OK records in the form of The Herd in 1996, Power of One in 1999, and then I think the project was retired entirely. And Greg Sage more or less vanished in the face of the earth. I was actually shocked that he was recently interviewed in Rolling Stone on the occasion of a 40th anniversary issue of the first Wipers record. Like, I didn't even realize that he was capable of being found. But uh, sure enough, it was a pretty interesting article. But I think Corey Grow wrote it. It was a good get. But the first four Wipers albums being Is This Real, Youth of America, Over the Edge, and Land of Loss, that's where it's at. I think of these, I'm of the belief that uh, probably Over the Edge has the best combination of quality songwriting, with the burning intensity of a guy who really means it. Uh, the title track, Romeo and Messenger, who only brings bad news naturally, are all primo examples of Greg Sage. And uh, the spirit of the band kind of lives on in prog punk ragers like the band Cloud Nothings, whose own song Wasted Days is practically a note for note cover of Youth of America. And that song in particular has some cover by Mishnah Burma, some cover by Melvins, and uh, some other bands. And if you're looking for Wipers in Spotify, um, which we allow simply because the records are somewhat hard to find these days, note that you have to look under both Wipers and The Wipers. And uh, streaming services also have what looks like a lot of official live albums, 
but every official Wipers live album sounds like a really crappy soundboard for some reason. There isn't even that much YouTube footage of them. They're nothing if not elusive. But let's listen to Over the Edge off of uh, the Wipers album the same day. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for hanging with us here in episode 108, where we covered a jam that I have been wanting to cover since we started this podcast, the Cross-Eyed and Painless from Matthew Knight Arena on October 17th, 2014 in Eugene, Oregon. Great jam. Hope that uh, if you haven't heard this, that it kind of opens up your eyes to the brilliance of it. If you had, I hope you enjoyed it. All the same, once again, um, in terms of songs we played here, segment one, autumnal road trips. I played the war on drugs, best night off of slave ambient. David played no joys. Nothing will hurt off of motherhood. In the second segment, Oregon music in our hearts and minds. I featured bootstraps by Drew grow and the pastor's wives. And Dave played over the edge by wipers so just a reminder you can find us in social media twitter at underscore beyond the pond on spotify there's the beyond the pond podcast song master playlist where to the extent that they're available we try to put every song that's we featured into a gigantic spotify playlist now has over 600 songs of course spotify great for mixes great for uh, sampling but now more than ever, you got to go to Bandcamp and buy the crap out of these records, buy vinyl, buy merchandise, anything to get some money into the hands of uh, artists who can no longer tour at this point in time. And uh, Spotify, while convenient, doesn't quite cut it in that regard. So check out this podcast and many other fantastic podcasts of the Osiris Podcast Network at OsirisPod.com. It's Osiris Media. And leave us an iTunes review. We get a kick out of reading them. 
No one's left one recently. Seriously, leave one. Like us, don't like us. We like to read them. Helps us be more visible in Tim Cook land. That's always a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, so publishing structure is going to change a bit here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have only one episode coming out here in the month of October. Uh, as you heard at the top of this episode, as well as we announced in a very goofy uh, video with our Osiris brethren, we are trying a experiment out here in October. Uh, we are going to work alongside of Under the Scales and the Helping Friendly Pod to do a deep dive on October 2000 and the impact of the first hiatus on fish. Um, seen as we're potentially in a second hiatus, though this one was not their choice, uh, seems kind of like a fitting time too, plus it's the 20th year anniversary. So, uh, Tom, uh, Marshall is going to be releasing a great interview this upcoming week, uh, on under the scales, followed by a HF pod deep dive into, uh, fall 2000. They're going to do some great interviews. Um, they're having our good buddy, Justin, Bruce on to talk about fall 2000 shows. And then we will be covering, uh, the Guy Forger from Phoenix, Arizona on October 1st, 2000, one of our favorite jams and a jam that may very well have been the last great fish jam in 1.0. So keep an eye out for that. That will drop on Tuesday, October 20th. Um, if you guys like this whole format, if you like this idea, we're going to try it again at some point here soon, uh, perhaps before the end of this year, but, um, we will definitely have, uh, some standard episodes coming out here before the end of the year. We've got to absolutely do our top albums of the year, as well as our, uh, very fun and gimmickry holiday run, uh, spectacular, if you will which we've done now three years running. So keep an eye out for that Tuesday, October 20th. Our next episode will drop. So if you've made it this far, of course, we congratulate you. We uh, enjoy that you've went on us this autumnal journey to Oregon with us in this jam. So come back. We'll hold hands. We'll say kumbaya. We'll fight off fish myopia with a stick. And we will go beyond the pond. Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media. It is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.